0: Give the word of God. Please turn to Mark chapter number 11, please. Don't you just love those hymns? I need to be often reminded of his coming to keep me moving throughout the day. Because it is so easy to for that to move to the back of our minds. Mark chapter number 11. If your will will rise for the uh, reading of God's word out of reverence for it. We'll take our reading up this morning in Mark chapter number 11 and verse number 1 to verse number 11. Um, the evangelist Mark, by the inspiration of God, writes these infallible words. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tie on which no one has sat, loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But uh, some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Uh, Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all the things... As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, again, I I pray that we enter in boldly to the throne room of grace um, with an expectant heart, Father, expecting you to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Father, it's unthinkable that we can approach the unapproachable, um, but we do it, Father, and we do it gloriously and joyously and reverently, Father, in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, we come, I pray, by faith and by faith alone. We know that without faith it's impossible to please you. Um, so, Father, give us a heart of faith this morning. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear, Father. Give us heart of understanding, Father. Just open up every faculty of our entire being, Father, that we um, as we meet with you this morning. God, we need your word. We need it more than our necessary food. Father, we need it more than um, we needed breakfast this morning. We need it more, Father, than we needed um, three meals a day for the last week, Father. Um, We need every word that proceeds out of the very mouth of God, Father. And that's the quandary, isn't it? On a lot of days, I don't want it. Father, I want my own. I want someone else's, Father. I want to build my own kingdom. And for that, I'm sorry. Um, And it's days like today, Father, when I sit before your bride and I see your beauty, Father, and I I sit under your word, um, Father, and I I prepare for a sermon and and I do all these things, Father. It's in those times that I'm reminded of the great necessity, Father, um, of you and my great need of you. So, Father, um, would you meet that need this morning? Um, Would you meet the need of every person that sits here? Father, even now or by way of um, audio, Father, years from now, I don't, I don't know, I know there's so many sermons I've been blessed by that are years removed. Uh, men have gone on to be with the Lord, and yet your, heart still, your your spirit still ministers to my heart in mighty ways. So God, I, I don't know what you desire for us this morning. I know what I want, but I, um, and in some sense I know what you want, Father, but I, and I pray that you would have that this morning. I pray that you would have your desires, Father, um, with your people, and that your will would be accomplished this morning, Father. And I'm fine with whatever that looks like. I'm fine with whatever that means, Lord. Um, I don't know exactly what that means, um, but whatever it may be, Lord, if you'd make us more like your Son, um, I know that it'll be worth it. If we'll lay up some treasures this morning in heaven, Father, if sinners will come to Christ and saints will be sanctified, Father, I know that it'll all have been worth it. So, God, we want to give this time to you now because it's yours anyway. You help us to have just a mind that has stayed upon you for uh, for the next hour, Lord, that um, you might accomplish. So remove the distractions, remove the hustle and bustle of the world, Father. Settle our hearts, Father, and just um, give us a, a single-mindedness on Christ in these few moments. Lord, it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. Amen. As I said, I know several of you are... Visiting with us with us this morning, and we thank God for you being here, just to bring you up to speed on what we're doing on the Lord's Day mornings and in God's worship. Um, is simply walking verse by verse through the Book of Mark. Um, I don't know how long it's been. It's been at least a year, maybe more. And uh, Lord willing, it'll be another six months to a year. I mean, if the Lord gives me that amount of time, I'm fine with that. Man, it's been a great it's been a great journey. Um. It's a beautiful thing to behold Christ week after week um, and have a have a book. And I, I know that all the books of the Bible are, are, are uh, focused in on Him. I know that, that He's the essence of each and every one, that everyone is pointing towards Him. Even, um, even those books that seem somewhat often obscure, it's all pointing towards Christ. But there's also um, something um, extra special, particularly special um, about those books that just lay it out at the forefront for us. And um, that we don't have to necessarily dig to find him, although those times are good too, because often treasure that you have to dig for is often much more valued than that which is just readily um, put on the plate and received. Um, so each um, each gives, um, has its own, its own um, pros and cons, if you will, from a natural perspective, uh, from a spiritual perspective, it's all good. Um, but particularly in the book of Mark and the gospel, man, it's been good just to read passage after passage of our Lord to see the way that He works, the way that He operates, the way that He interacts with people, just to see His godly affections, to see His uh, the way a man ought to handle his, his anger, the way that a man ought to love his neighbor, the way that um, He takes people underneath His wing, just the compassion for the lost and and, and the needy. And, and it's just been such a blessing um, to be able to read through the book of Mark at such a slow pace and to take it verse by verse and to pull out just um, seamless and valuable treasures that, that we'll carry with us throughout the rest of our lives and even on in, into eternity. And, and we praise God for that because we know that, um, that, that, that this is, that, that to the natural man, this is just ink on a page. It's intellect. It's academia um, at its best. It's, it's beautiful poetry. Um, but to the uh, spirit-wrought, born-again believer of God, uh, to the child of God, it's the very words of their Father. It's the infallible, it's the infallible, inerrant, reverent Word of God that, had, that, that that is eternal and accomplishes eternal things. And I pray that that's how you approach it this morning as we come to this passage. We come to Mark chapter number eleven and verse number one, and you read these words. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem. Christ is now on his way to Jerusalem. In the text, um, this is the last time. Uh, there's a sense in which it's all about to be over at this point, but not over in the way that um, there's nothing after this. It's over in the sense that Jesus Christ is reaching his final goal. We, we as the reader, as gleaning or gleaning into the very text of scriptures in the life of Christ, we are reaching the culmination of human history. Um, it's, if, if human history was a symphony, Christ's life could be viewed as um, this great crescendo coming out of the Old Testament, right? Um, if you were to view Christ's life throughout the Gospel of Mark or any of the other Gospels, this portion of the text would be somewhat like the, the, the high peak of the greatest crescendo. In Christ's life, we're reaching the height of that, that great uh, purpose in which He came for. We're now at this moment in the text. We see a turn in the book of Mark where we're entering into what uh, many refer to and we refer to as the Passion Week. Mark chapter 11 through, verse, or through chapter 16 will deal with the last week of our Lord's life. So this week will be, no doubt, um, this week, not this week as far as us goes, but this week as far as the last week of our Lord will no doubt take us months to get through. Um, and it's really amazing to me as I reflect upon the life of our Lord in the last week of his life that the greatest portion of the Gospels is given just to that. Mark chapter 11 through 16, six chapters out of his book, more than one third. Luke um, gives five chapters. John gives a whopping um, 11 chapters, 10 to 11 chapters in his book, almost over half of John's Gospel to this last week of our Lord's life. And Matthew does a similar portion um, as well. If you were to, um, and this is what we come to, the last five to seven days of Christ's life. Of course, it shouldn't surprise us, even throughout the his, this gospel as well as the others, Christ is constantly teaching and reminding the disciples that this is what He's here for. Volumes couldn't contain all the miracles and works that Christ did throughout His life. Um, so why didn't He write them down? Um, particularly because He had a purpose in the gospels, and that purpose was that you might have faith and believe in Him. So he recorded those things which were necessary to birth into to the, the life of an unbeliever to, to be the means by which accomplishes faith in, in you and I and every single nation, tribe, and tongue throughout every generation um, since the time of Christ. Thus he records and gives the greatest portion of the Gospels um, to these last five to seven days um, of his life. Verse number 1, he's left Galilee weeks before this. Um, moving way... His way from the north all the way down to the city of Jerusalem in Judea. All along the way, He's ministering the truth of the kingdom to the people. The gospel of the kingdom, He's demonstrating the power of the kingdom. He's doing miracles all along the way as He's moving towards Jerusalem. But He's not alone. Of course, His disciples are with Him, but the crowds seem to be growing as well. Um, Christ has had crowds of all sorts throughout His ministry, some swelling and some um, that that, that would not be large at all. Many times He was abandoned because of His hard teaching. And here the crowds the text gives us seem to be becoming intense in this moment. It could be very well because in recent days, multiple miracles have been done. You may remember from last week that he travels through a place called Jericho. Um, you may remember Jericho from the Old Testament with Joshua. Um, there's actually two Jerichos in which um, are, are geographical at this time. A new Jericho has been planted just miles apart. We're not sure exactly which one that he does, but we know that when he goes through, man, he does some miracles. Um, he heals two blind men, the text tells us. Not only in the book of Mark, we le- we learn of blind Bartimaeus um, but also in the book of Matthew, we learn in that his parallel account that there were two blind men um, that were present. And those blind men are gloriously healed, and I believe at least Bartimaeus was gloriously saved. And we find that at, uh, at that moment, he follows Jesus in the crowd. Not only that, but if you were to go to Luke, uh, the, the book of Luke, you would find out that while he's also in Jericho, he meets a man by the name of, um, of uh, Zacchaeus, a wee little man. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. Um, but as we as he was, he was a greedy sinner like most of us, and God gloriously saves that, that wicked tax collector. And um, repents; uh, he repents of his sins, and he follows after Jesus. Not only that, if you were to study the book of John previous to the account that we're at today, if you were to find um, this portion of text nestled in the book of John, you would also find that in John chapter twelve and verse number fourteen, or John chapter eleven—sorry, John chapter eleven—you would find the account of Lazarus. Um, You read in uh, chapter eleven, verse number one here, that he comes to Bethphage and Bethany. And um, Bethany's that um, that great town in which his beloved Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus live. You find in John chapter number eleven that um, that Lazarus is 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 on his sick bed. He's on his deathbed. What happens? Um, they cry out to Jesus. Jesus doesn't come, and Lazarus dies. Jesus comes, and he gloriously um, brings uh, Lazarus back from the dead. The text tells us why, so that they would believe. Um, that God works a work of uh, resurrection in the life of Lazarus so that Mary and Martha and those surrounding would believe. But we also find that, that not only do people believe, we also find in that text that people not only believe, people do not believe as a result of it. Um, We find out that there's a crowd that continues to grow in disdain for our Lord, even to the point in John chapter 12 that not only do they desire um, after Lazarus' resurrection, the Pharisees and the scribes plot to kill Jesus, but they also plot to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he's a trophy of God's grace and proof that he is able to do um, the unthinkable and that he is the God of of very God. So, what you find in this text is now this, this swelling crowd of growing people. Why? Possibly because of the miracles that he's doing. He's becoming more public, but at the same time, uh, from a negative perspective, um, not, not only in faith, but in unbelief. Why? Because John chapter 12 tells us that they conspire together. Why? Because um, they believe that the entire world's going to go after this man. They view him as modern day um, um, Jews, Uh, Israelites of a a radical nature view him as a distinct rebel um, in the early life of the New Testament church, um, which was was murdered for his rebellion. And in a sense, that's true. That's exactly why they murdered him. They murdered him because he claimed to be the Son of God. They murdered him because he was God. And they murdered him because they were worried that the Gentiles would come after him, that Jerusalem, that they would lose um, their Jewish identity, that they would lose um, the people of the nation of Israel, and they would be mixed in with the Gentiles throughout all the world, and that all people would come unto him. Thus, they conspired to kill him. I um, mean, that's exactly what you see in this last week of Jesus' life. You see Jesus enter into a public ministry like he's not had before, um, and I and I personally think that that's because the work is now to be done. That he's going to press the religious elite. He's going to repre- uh, uh, he's going to um, um, oppose those whom now he's been hi- he's been in some sense hiding from. And you see that all throughout the Gospels, we went through that. That that his work, his hour had not yet come. Yet in John chapter 12 and verse 23, he says that very thing, that the hour has now come. Um, That his work is about to be done. There's no longer to hide. There's no now he's going to press um, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribe, and Rome itself. Um, Why? Because um, that's his work. That's His work. His hour has come. The goal of the incarnation is, is, is uh, reaching its climax. He comes um, a, to the city, which has a long history of killing her prophets. That's what Matthew tells us. And He goes to the city that kills the prophets with full knowledge that, they just, that just as they killed the prophets of old, um, they will kill Him too. Because of the preaching of the gospel, the, repent, the repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and the great uh, position that he will take against um, the wickedness that now dwells within those, within the borders and boundaries of that of that land. Not only is he going to Jerusalem, he's approaching Mount Olives, is what the text says there. Um, and then he sends two of his disciples. Just a quick note: um, The Mount of Olives, um, Zechariah fourteen four, um, Jerusalem is just is just the pinnacle of of, of of prophecy. This is where he's going to die at the crucifixion. Mount of Olives also takes a great place. Maybe reminding the reader of that very thing that in Zechariah fourteen four speaks of a messianic prophecy, which in that day the Mount of Olives shall be split into from east to west, making a very large um, valley that 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 the Messiah will put his feet and will stand upon that mount, and. Um, so it's a place of anticipation and messianic glory. And as we read the text, that's exactly what we how we should read it. That, that, that there's an anticipation growing in our hearts as Christians as we read the Book of Mark and we come to chapter number 11 and we know about what's to hap- what's about to happen. It's like reading an old, it's like watching an old video of a loved one. You know a father or a mother or maybe a brother or a sister or a wife or a husband and you, you think about those those glorious days of having them with you and now they've gone on to be with the Lord and you know that at some point it has to come to an end and, and we read the text and we put ourselves in the text in such a way that that, that that as we come to mark chapter number 11 or Matthew chapter 21 and so forth and so on um, there, there's an anticipation growing in our hearts as we read the text um, because we know that um, that this just man this righteous man this king of glory um, this 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 Beauty of all beauties, if there's ever an objective nature um, to beauty altogether, it's not in the stars, it's not in the skies, it's not in the flowers, it's not in the face of your newborn, it's in Jesus Christ. And they're about to do the ugliest thing that you could ever think of to the, to the, to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the lily of the valley. Um, and they're about to take his life five to seven days, and they're going to take him um, in the most horrific way that you could ever think. So this anticipation is growing. And we see in somewhat the coordination of that um, in this text. We read in verse number one that after we, we, that he sends two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the village opposite you and as soon as you have entered it, well, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set loose it and bring it. And this is really a, a strange text. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, the, the more that I read it, I, some of it to me doesn't really uh, make fullness of sense, yet, yet, I, yet I trust it. And, um, and and it's so helpful, but at the same time, it seems somewhat obscure. Um, they're traveling along to Jerusalem and Jesus out of nowhere sends two of His disciples to fetch a donkey. Um, you can imagine how obscure it is to the disciples that are going to fetch a donkey. Um, he doesn't explain necessarily the entirety of it. And you read John's Gospel, you find at the very end of it that the disciples don't understand what happened at all. They won't understand it, until John tells us, until the glorification. They don't understand the entirety of the scenario until Christ is resurrected and received in glory. Uh, But nevertheless, the disciples are, are good disciples. They're faithful disciples. And we don't see any questioning in the text. They simply go and they fetch the donkey. Jesus tells them specifically to fetch a donkey that had never been ridden. Uh, this is significant for one particular reason, because when you read the Old Testament, you'll find of uh, multiple instances in which a beast that has never been ridden um, is often um, saved for particular or sacred purposes. A red heifer that would be um, used in the sacrifice was never to even have a yoke upon it. Deuteronomy twenty one three and first Samuel six seven we find, we were told that to ride an animal young animal that had never been ridden was a mark of special honor it was set aside for something extremely unique and that's no um, exception to this particular story that um, there is something very unique about this little cult. and they're told that uh, that when the bystanders asked her to tell them the Lord the Lord has need of it. You know, um, and there's a lot of debates when you read Christians throughout the history and commentators on this as whether this is a miracle or not. Um. That this 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 donkey is prepared, this 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 animal is prepared for the Lord. Um, uh, you read some commentators, and they believe that Jesus went uh, at some point in the night, or they knew of him, and they were raising it for that particular purpose. And that this is actually a password. It's like a code to get in. Your kids have a special type of uh, um, of uh, societies or whatever when you're growing up. And there's always a secret password, you know, um, to get in. Um, some believe that this is exactly what that is. That the Lord has need of them. Um, some have argued that it's simple password and that jesus arranged it prior to and that could be That's total speculation i think it's miraculous i think um, nevertheless these people are believers they understand who christ is they understand who the lord is and this is total self-disclosure on christ's part that he is the lord um and that christ has need of it um and that's what we read here for sure the uh um, sorry uh uh, he goes into the village opposite of you and as soon as you've entered in, you'll find that a colt tied on which no one has set loose it and, and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and immediately he will send it here. The colt is also significant not only because it's not been written, but because of um, Old Testament messianic prophecy. If you'd like to, you can turn to the book of Genesis, chapter number 49, and you'll read um, the first, which I think would somewhat deal with this, this text. You may remember in Genesis 49, Jacob is about to leave the scene and he blesses his sons and he gives them somewhat prophetic messages um, to each and every one of them. In verse number 10, we read this, "...the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine." Um, what we find in this particular passage is a Messianic prophecy. First of all, that the scepter would not depart until Shiloh came. Shiloh being peace. He's saying something that through the tribe of Judah um, that one of the, that is going to be one of the foundations of Christ's coming, of the Messianic hope. That if you're going to look um, to hope. Like we would look to a passage of Scripture in the second coming. Um, this portion of Scripture, um, God gives it to the people of God to look to Judah. And whenever you see Judah alive, Uh, Whenever you see them operating, have hope that the Messiah is coming. That that, that the scepter, the symbol of sovereignty and rule will not depart from them, nor will a ruler's staff from between His feet. That as long as they're alive, nation, as long as they're alive, the people of God, um, you have hope. And the focus of this messianic hope is beginning um, to narrow more and more that that, that when Shiloh comes, there'll be this, this choicest of vines, that there'll be this prosperity that comes over the land. that There's going to be this peace that comes through the rule and the reign of this one who would come through um, the tribe of Judah. And until Shiloh comes, that is the one with peace comes, um, you, you are to have hope and to look for him. Verse number 11 ties that um, donkey to a vine. That there's a fostered hope that the Messiah would come and somehow would be a donkey tied to Shiloh and tied to the peace that come. Um, It would be a time of prosperity, as I said, signified by by vines. Not only that, but if you were to go to the book of 1 Kings, and I know that this is a lot of data, um, and I hope that you're good with that. um, Because if you get the data, man, you'll you'll walk away with such hope. It's all tied together. Old Testament to New Testament. It's all um, enthroned there um, together. When you come to first Kings, what you find is that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, um the, the 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 messianic hope and the clarity of his coming is becoming more clear and more clear. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12 um is already taken place by this point. And what it was was a promise that when the days were fulfilled and that you rest with your fathers, I'll set up a seat after you, speaking to David, uh, who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Um and your house, he goes on and says, and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So not only is it coming through Judah, it's coming through David. So as long as you see David's line alive, then have hope, ch- children. Have hope, people of God. And then in chapter 33, or chapter 1 of 1 Kings, in verse 33, um, we also read these words, and it begins to narrow even more. Um, as we look back into um, this text from Mark chapter number 11. You read these words. The king also said to them, Take with you servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. And there let Zadok and the priest, the, the, the Nathan the, the prophet, anoint him king over Israel and blow the horn and long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him and he shall sit on my throne and he shall be king, and, uh, king in my place for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah." As David is giving closing instructions on who's to be the king, um, of course, he has in mind a prophecy that was given to him that one of his sons would sit on the throne forever. In this portion of Scripture, what do we see? We see um, a, 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 an example of what Christ is about to do. David is going to anoint his son and on the way to the throne, what does he do? He puts him on his own mule um, to ride to the throne. And what do we know when Matthew tells us in 12 verse 42 that the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with his generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. What you're seeing is this clarity coming to the nation and to the people. And as Christ comes... Um, they may have thought back to Math or to First Kings or to Second Samuel or to um, Genesis forty nine or even all the way back to Genesis chapter three um, that this king is coming that he's coming as Solomon did on a on a mule as to his to his great throne and various other um, 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 pictures of that. Not only that, but in verses seven through ten of Mark chapter number eleven, we read of um, that great what we would refer to as triumphal entry. And we see even more clarity. Uh, Verse number 7, "...then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and He sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And then those who went before and, and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest!" What do they do? They bring a colt, they put their coats on it, they take some palm branches and they throw it on the ground that Jesus may come um, across it. And it's really hard to narrow down specifically what all prompted this. You know, from the crowd's minds, because the scripture doesn't really give us clear motivation on what it is. But we know that our Lord triggered something with the donkey that provoked them to adoration and to praise. Um, This is begun by casting of garments and palm branches. We're not going to take the time, but if you were to go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, and verse 13, you would read of another king, King Jehu, in which Elisha the prophet prophesies of Ahab and Jezebel, just two of the most wicked rulers in the nation of Israel. Um, and what happens is, is that Jehu is anointed to be king over Israel. And Elisha tells him to ride into the city to be anointed king. And the people are so oppressed under a wicked and a tyrannical regime that they begin to take off their garments and put them upon the steps to celebrate as Jehu would walk up the steps to be enthroned as the new king of Israel and overthrow a tyrannical government um, uh, sustained by the wicked Ahab and wicked um, Jezebel. So the people begin to do the very same thing. He's recognized in the text as the son of David, that great Davidic hope in Second Samuel that we mentioned. All those texts begin to rush, I think, into at least some of their minds, and they begin to cry out, "Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna!" Literally means, "Lord, save us now." Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, you may remember that I read it this morning as we commenced the service, Psalm chapter number one, eighteen, verses twenty-two through verse twenty-six. What's also interesting is that um, Psalm 118 is a pilgrim song. Psalms 114 through 118 are psalms that they would sing at Passover. It very well could be that somewhere around this event, in the crowds as they're ascending to Jerusalem and coming home for Passover, it very well could be such such a, such a strange account that as they are singing this song, that it provokes them to adoration and praise as they see this one come in on a donkey. Thus they, they, they prayed to God. Not only praise, but prayed to God, Lord, save us now. You see, it's not so much a, a praise, although it can be. It's a prayer. That's what the Psalms often are. It's the heart of the people of God um, lifting their their desires up to God and begging Him for certain things, bringing petitions before Him. And this is no different. There's no doubt in my mind that these people under the tyrannical regime of Rome and under the legalistic um, outcries and and, and just garb of of the religious elite of Israel, that they are begging God to save them. They're begging. Um, Although they don't really understand it, do they? They don't understand it. And that's exactly what John tells us, that they didn't fully understand it until the glorification um, had come. Psalm chapter number 118, just to remind you of that, verse number 22 particularly, it could have been that at that very moment they're singing these words the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I know that we often use that as this day. And, and, and that's true because this day is a glorious day that the Lord's made and we should rejoice in it. But it's because of that day. That day that the stone um, that, that was rejected. That day when, 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 when worms <laughs> that were created by God rose up out of the dirt and laid the Son of God on, him, on that tree um, because of the hatred that they had before Him. In verse 25, Save now, I pray, O Lord, Hosanna. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Remember that vine of prosperity? Remember when Shiloh comes? We have blessed you from the house of our Lord. God is, is the Lord and He has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords and the horns to the altar. You are my God and I will praise You. And It very well could be um, that some of them in this crowd understood some of that, um, but for the vast majority, most of them um, did not. Most of them... Um, did not. Hosanna in the highest. Not in the highest degree, but the highest places, the crying to the very heavens, um, that God would come down and that God would, would save them. And that's essentially the text. That's the text. What was the reaction? What did they make of it? Again, John tells us in John chapter number twelve that they didn't understand it, not even the disciples. There's somewhat of a mixed reaction. And it reminds me of the birth of Christ in some sense. You may remember with the impact of Christ's birth in Jerusalem. What was the response? Many understood and many didn't. You know? Why? Because it was glorious, but it wasn't. It was glorious in a messianic sense as we look back and we know what Christ accomplished and we look at Him and we think, man, you were fools. Why didn't you see it? Um. But in some sense, from a natural perspective, you ask the question, why would they see it? Everything that they had known about the Old Testament, everything that they would read about the Psalms, everything that they knew about Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and these great prophets of old, um, spoke of a king who would come and he would rule the nations. So their theology was, was embedded in this glorious king that would essentially come and just um, alleviate, bring peace and, um, and his righteousness and rule and reign would be established throughout all the earth when you read the major and the minor prophets. And this, this man comes, this baby's born in a stable. Um, and while most of Israel doesn't understand it, it's enough for most of uh, Rome and, and part of Israel um, to get upset about it. What do you find? You find that also in that moment, you find that Herod is, 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 is just um, just livid and angry at the birth of Christ. That the devil is, is alive and well and the demonic entities of that day just so possess um, here either in his natural state or possessed by some um, demonic level to, to take out the Christ and to do it. You know what he's going to do? He's going to murder every male baby under the age of two that he could find. You better believe that the world believes in Christ. Um, they knew what he could do. They saw the plan unfolding before them. They knew that the king had come. They understood, in some sense, that he was uh, such an entity that he would be threatened, or that he would threaten their state of existence, um, such that they compiled everything that they could um, to make sure that it didn't happen. And that's what we see also here. This is going to be that moment in time where He's going to bring His disciples in and try to bring them closer to um, the teaching of His death. But at the same time, He's going to press against the Pharisees and the scribes. Why? Because His work must be done. This is really the first great ex- public expression in which He doesn't care who sees Him. And all the crowds are there to glean. Crowd in the front, one, a uh, gospel writer says, and a crowd in the back. No doubt mixed between the two of those who are, are praising the Messiah for him coming. Those, probably three crowds, those who don't understand what's going on at all, um, to such that they say, Who is this in one gospel? Uh, but also those, uh, to, to those who hate him. What's the significance of all this? Let me give you one significance. Matthew chapter 21 and verse number 4 tells us. Um, that part of the significance is that prophecy would be fulfilled. That prophecy um, would be fulfilled. You read these words, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Um, That's probably a mixed quotation between Isaiah and Zechariah. In Isaiah chapter number sixty-two and verse number eleven, we see the first portion of that text um, related, and it points the people to the fact that he, that Christ Himself, is the salvation of the Lord; that He's the embodiment of redemption; that He's both the King and the sacrifice. And then, if you were to turn to Zechariah um, chapter number nine, and it's close to Matthew. If you were to go to Matthew, you'd find Malachi, and then Zechariah. Zechariah chapter nine and verse number nine, you read the last end of that quote. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold your king is coming to you. He is just as he is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, he shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth. If you were to read Zechariah, the first portion of it, you'd read of an opposite kingdom and an opposite city. Um, most people that, that um, have studied the Word I believe it's talking about Alexander the Great. That great um, strong arm that came in and conquered the nations with, uh, with it by his fist. And what you see is a contrast there in verse number nine. That there is one coming who will come in opposition to that. He will come in total contrast to that. He won't come in with the strength of his arm, and he won't come um, with with a great sword. What he will come in is he will come on a colt. He won't come with horses and chariots. He'll come um, to bring peace, but it won't be through war in that sense. And what you see is you see the introduction. In Zechariah, as well as through Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 62, and multiple other places throughout the Old Testament, like Genesis chapter number 49, that we have a divine conqueror that is coming who will establish peace across the nations, not by force, but by the presentation of his character, by presenting his character against the background. One writer says of the invincible march of Alexander the Great. He goes on to write that one comes very different than Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great inspires fear. Alexander the Great inspires dread. Alexander the Great uh, makes war. But this king of verse 9 and following does not inspire fear and dread, but praise, he says. He doesn't make war. He makes peace. He, he's not a foreign tyrant. He's, he is Israel's own king. He's not cruel and oppressive. He's kind and righteous. He doesn't slay. He saves. He's not rich, he's poor. He's not proud, he's meek. He's, he's not a, riding a white horse, he's riding a colt of a beast of burden. Very stark contrast, he says. End quote." And what you see is you see the king coming. You see in Mark chapter number 10, the presentation, the coronation, as meek and as lowly as it is, as he rides in on a donkey. It's never been ridden. <laughs> um. The king is here. That's the proclamation. That's the significance. The king of the Old Testament, that the prophecy was born in Genesis chapter 3, ran through Genesis chapter 49. We see pictures of it and promises of it in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and in Isaiah and Zechariah and, and, and multiple other places throughout all the Old Testament. This is it. He's saying, Look, I'm here. The king has come. But the peace that will come to the nations won't be found the way that most of you want it. This event was so loud and clear that they all should have seen, at least those who knew of the Old Testament. The event was loud and clear, a declaration that the King has come. He's brought salvation. He's worthy of praise. You know, This will push the issue with people all around Him though. The question will be, will they receive Him as He is? And your Bible scholars, students, you know, you've read the end of the book. But they didn't. They didn't get it. The great question going possibly, and and we know that He's omniscient. He knows all things. But but, but as you come to the text in anticipation, the great question of the story here is, is, will they receive Him as He is? Will they receive Him as He's come? And you may say, well, it appears that they have. They're all gathering around. I mean, they're praising Him. Right? They're singing Hosanna. Surely there's a declaration and a recognition and an acknowledgement that the King is come. But at the same time, like that, that, that elates our hearts to join in with them. But at the same time, that's the great tragedy of the passage, isn't it? Like it seems that they have, but it's clear that they haven't because in one week, some of the same men and women that shouted Hosanna in the highest will shout, crucify Him. Crucify Him. And they will beat him, and they will batter him, they will bruise him, they will take a cat of nine tails across his back, they will laugh at him, they will mock him, they will pluck his beard out, they will put a crown of thorns upon him, they will play lots with him, they will gamble with him. And a week earlier, they sang Hosanna Hosanna in the highest. And they didn't understand one iota of what they were saying. Not one point. They ask questions from the crowd. Even who is this? They don't know what's going on. It's, it's somewhat peer pressure. It's, it's following a mob mentality. Or at the very least, they, they looked at Him as the Savior that they desired, but when He wasn't the Savior that they wanted, they, deserved, they determined that He was no Savior at all. That's the great Tragedy the King has come. He's there to ascend His throne. They gather around and say, take the throne, and when He does, they won't have Him as their King. Will they receive the Christ the Scriptures proclaim? Will they receive the God of heaven and earth? Or will they reject Him because He's not the Savior that they thought that He he should be and that they wanted Him to be? He's not the one that would come in and overthrow Rome. He's not the one that would alleviate them like Solomon did or like Jacob would uh, from Ahab and Jezebel. Thus they see Him as no king at all. You know? He's not the one that would come in and, and, and give them the, the, the boundaries back that were promised to them under the old covenant. He's not, he's not the one that would come in and answer all the, the, be their little genie in a bottle and give them everything that they wanted in the way that they understood um, the Old Testament scriptures to be. Um, they wanted a king, there's no doubt, but they, wanted to, they really wanted themselves to be king. And that's the reality of the human heart, isn't it? We love. Human autonomy and freedom. You know, I know in the past few days and months and years, we've looked at America and we thought, man, it's going to hell in a handbasket as, as conservative, biblical, traditional Christians look. And we see there's such an overreach of tyranny. And we think that's the greatest problem. I don't think that's the greatest problem. That's a problem. I don't think that's the greatest problem. We think that the greatest problem is the removal of our freedom and autonomy. I'm convinced that our greatest problem is the idolization of freedom and autonomy. We want to be gods ourselves. It doesn't matter who's in the White House. It doesn't matter who's in Congress. It doesn't matter who's in the House. Like We love them as long as they love us. We want them as long as they want us. We are a nation born out of rebellion. And with much of it, I agree, you know, uh, with the nation of America and its founding. I, I get it. But it's all, we've also fostered within this um, nation and within, even within the, the the realm of Christianity, this this form of self identity and self autonomy and self actualization and self expression and, and 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 a denial and a rebellion against any type of authority. I mean, we, we want flexibility in our jobs. We want to make our own, our own wages and our own pay. We don't want to boss over us. We don't we won't want to come to a church that actually exercises any authority over a congregation. We want to live as free and as a full as we possibly can because we want to be kings ourselves. That's the, that's the great issue with the human soul that we're born into this world um, with a with nature and a soul that just desires more and more and more and more. And as long as we can have a king over us that gives us more and more and more that we want and meet our needs, um, we're just happy as a lark. you know It could be uh, happy as a, you know, a toddler playing in the sand, not knowing anything different. But the moment that you know um, an actual king rises up, See that's the problem with us. We don't know what a king looks like. We have been blessed to be in the land of the free, and man, I, I thank God for that. Just with the liberties that we have, so don't get um, don't get uh, get the idea that I'm preaching against you know what's uh, America or liberty or freedom. Um, man, I love what God has given us, and we are tremendously blessed here in this nation to do things like we're doing. i um, here this this morning, um, so don't get the I- idea of that. Um, and it's not just an American problem. It's a human problem and its essence. Um, that, that we love. That we, that, that, but, but part of the point is, is that we don't know what a monarch looks like. Right? We don't know what it's like to submit to a king. We don't have a clue. We are unique in history and geography. And we thank God for that in some sense. But in another sense, anybody that rises up and tries to tell us what to do, we will, we will almost buck against and say, what, what right do you have? I can tell you as a pastor. I can tell you as a, you know, a managing a, a a household or managing even a, a a career. And most of you know this as well. You know um, that those that are under you generally, basically, at a natural stage, don't do well with authority over them. And we love to cast it all off. And we love to give the guys that authority is over us by putting people over us that we agree with. And that's why we have elected who we have elected. You know. Why? Because they will give us what we want. Or at least part of the country will receive that which they want and that which they desire. And that's exactly what happened in this text. He was as good of a king as as long as they submitted to Him. You know? He was as good as a king and as, as a utilitarian. it was a utilitarian type of mentality that we will use him insofar as he benefits us, and when he does it, we will crucify him. Thus we can say, one week Hosanna and the next crucify him. But at the same time, like we can't be too hard on him because that's us, right? Like that's us. That's us. That's the world in which we live in. That's much of Christianity that we engage with. That's much of what we wake up and look in the mirror. One day we're praising Him because He's King and He's blessing us. And the next week we're saying, Lord, where are You at at all? Do You love me at all? That the purpose of this text is to simply say that the King is come. And that when the King comes, the King comes to rule. And that the King comes to reign, but He comes to rule and He comes to reign. Um, the way that He has outlined. He is the sovereign. He is the ruler. He is the one that ascends to the throne. And if He desires to achieve peace, not through war, but through sacrifice and through suffering, then bring the peace. And that's exactly how it came. You know? That we have our ideas and how peace should come. Jesus gives a totally different one. (laughs) You know? different than all of us would have chosen, different than the Jews would have picked out, different than you would have written written the story. And that's the truth, that Christ comes and He comes um, to offer peace to all those who will come unto Him who are heavy laden, and I will give you, come unto Me and I will give you rest. Peace. How does He do it? He does it through suffering. How does He rule and how does He reign? He reigns and rules through the hearts of men. Luke 18, verse 36 says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Don't you love that? You know, like if I came to come, you better believe that I'd have an army behind me, and we'd settle all this in just a moment. But the war that I'm about to fight is a war throughout the ages for the hearts of men, and it can't be won by bloodshed or by by by, by, by warfare of this of this age. You know, um, Pilate he says, therefore, or Pilate says to him, to him then, are you a king? Then Jesus answers and says, You say rightly that I am a king, for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world. And you can imagine the laughing, the scoffing, the mocking, or at least the rolled eyes. What kind of king is this? As they they raise him up and, and mount upon him king of the Jews. And mock the suffering Savior, the sinless Son of God, um, the, the beauty of all the ages, the King of glory, the one who had all right and authority in heaven and earth to just wipe off this old mud ball of all of its unrighteousness. And he submits and goes like a lamb um, to, the, to the slaughter as dumb doesn't open up his mouth. Why? Because he's got a different battle to fight. He's got another work to be done. And he settled it in time and in eternity. And now it's about to become a reality that which he had made, that pact which he had made with the father before the ages began. He said, I'll send you. And he said, father, I will go. And here I am. Here I come. The king is here. And he rules by righteousness and he rules by love and he rules by the law of God. And he rules by his son, which he, which is the law of love. He rules by the two greatest commandments: love God and love your neighbor. And thus, the gospel goes forth into the hearts and minds of the people, and it and it gives new hearts, and it and it, and it secures um, salvation for all those who would believe. And Christ comes, and He suffers for the nations, and that's His kingdom. You look around, and this is His kingdom this morning. And the question is: Is He is He your king? Is He king? Is he king in your life? Is your he didn't come to be your best friend. He didn't come to be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. He didn't come um, to, to to be um, this or that or whatever. You know, you're a genie in a bottle. He didn't come um, to, to to be a good influence. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a, a wonderful rabbi. He's not just a good authority. He's not just a guy that you should listen to. He's king this morning. He's the ruler of the nations. And His influence comes through the rule and the reign that He does in your hearts and mine. We look around and we think, man, there's not much here this morning. Or some of you are looking around and you're thinking, man, this is a, this is a lot. It is a lot. Why? Because it is a lot of Christ's ruling and reigning this morning through His kingdom. Through the hearts of men. But that's what He came to be here this morning, men. He came to be your King. He came to rule over you. He came to rule, reign. And He came that this morning you might submit to Him. He came to rule over your families. He came to rule over your career. He came to rule over this church. He came to rule the nations. Every nation, tribe, and tongue through the Gospel love that He's expressed and the righteousness that He extends to all His believers. To all those who will come unto Him and call upon His name. This morning in the text, we see a king that has come and we see a great quandary within it, don't we? We see a time of just exaltation that we want to join in, but at the same time, um, we see a a crowd or two crowds in the front and the back um, that are just overlaid with ignorance and misunderstanding and who desire a king, but in essence desire to be their own king. Is that you this morning? You know? Christ, I pray, has been presented in all of His glory as the Messianic hope that if peace is ever going to be offered to this nation, to this world, and to your heart, the only place I'm telling you this morning is going to find it in Him. Um, That's it. This is the only place. You say, well, they found it in Him. No, they didn't. You know, Paul tells us that any other Jesus, anybody comes preaching another gospel or another Jesus, let him be accursed. Listen, just because he bears the name of Christ and you offer up something to his name doesn't necessitate that you're worshiping the same Jesus. Is Jesus king in your life? When you go home today, do you bow the knee to him in your home life? Man, do 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 you take the text that God has given you to be a man and to be a husband and to be a father, and do you just bow the knee or do you go home and rule you know with a tyrannical hand you know with anger in your heart because, because that's what you've learned from your father or from your boss or this or that are you submitting to Christ today you know or do we have a Christianity that's just overlaid with Christ the Savior and in love with him but but, but Christ is not Lord you know, over our lives He's not governing us you know He said well it's just too hard to live the Christian life not if you have a new heart friend you know. Christ's commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because, because those who have a new heart have a heart of, of love expressed to them and righteousness such that, that yes, it's difficult, but it's difficult because you, you know that day in and day out, you can't give him what he deserves. That's what makes it difficult. It's not between doing right and wrong, you know? It's between knowing that, 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 that the angels give him things, and I, I want to give him things like that as well. Like I know that I'll fill the rest of my day, you know, that even if I did fill the rest of my day with, with with things that I think honor him, I know that at the end of the day that it's still fallible outside of Christ. You know? Like that's the difficulty. The difficulty is to submit enough, the difficulty is to express gratitude enough, the difficulty is to love him enough. Because he's so worthy, because he's so beautiful, because he's so awesome, because he is so gracious. Do you love him? I'm not, I'm not presenting to you this morning a king that's coming and he's tyrannical and overbearing. I'm presenting to you this morning a king who is willing to come and offer his life a sacrifice on your behalf. And I beg you and and imp- compel you this morning that if that is that if you were without him, that you would run to him this morning and find peace. I know that's what you want. That's what we all want. Do you have it this morning? And then believers, are we submitting to Christ in every area? Or are we building our own kingdom? I struggle with that too. You know? Doing things in the church, doing things at home, having a particular verse and reference and and just utilizing that means to do what I want. Listen, if I do that, I'm no better than these men who tag Jesus' name to their King. And it won't be till next week. I might be high this week, but it won't be till next week where I'm low. Because that's nothing more than a prosperity gospel. Um, where you're saying, God bless me, and if you bless me, I'll serve you. And if you don't bless me, Father, I won't. Listen, if Jesus is king today, he's king tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Like if he's king, that means he's ruling and reigning over every single thing. And you should trust him in that. Like, do you get do we understand that? Like, Jesus is king over all the world today. Jesus is king over this church. Jesus is king over all the all the nations, he's king over your families. You know what that means? You know what that means if you're a subject of His. You know what it means if you're a child of His. You know, if we carry on in this world with just some of the most dodgy faces, <laughs> you know, and just just a, a frown, you know, all day long wondering what God is doing and what in the world He's, you know, the nation, what's happening to the nations, and we live without hope, you know listen if Christ is king this morning you have the greatest hope the messianic hope and you can go back to Genesis 3 Genesis 49 2 Samuel so forth and so on take Mark take Luke take John take any of them take Revelation take it all gain some hope and and, and live this life as if he's king you know stop wondering if and when and then go by faith you know we do it day in and day out wondering if this is the right thing or that's the thing like if God said it take it home with you I can serve Him with joy and hope because you know that if He's the King and He's ruling over it and you're His inheritance, then you have great hope and confidence in Him. Um, You know? I think we... Yeah, I struggle with that. I struggle with that. I've been convicted particularly of evangelism. You know? You walk up to a guy or a gal or this person or that person and you think, man... I would like for you to talk to you, you know, um, about um, yeah. Um, what do you think, um, Jesus? He's king. Present him like he's a king, you know, of all the world, all the nations. There's no fear. He's ruling and he's reigning, and, he, and, and all authority has been given to him um, in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore, and he says, "Lo, I will go with you. You don't go alone." Oftentimes we do this. We, we live the Christian life and we think we go alone. You don't. You have a great king who has, sent, has given you orders. You're representative of him. Therefore, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go home to your families and submit to the rule and reign of Christ. And I bet, and I will guarantee you that what came in as a, on a humble cult into your into your heart and your life um, will produce most, the most choicest of vines. There will be soul prosperity and home prosperity um, in your life. Um, that that will abound to the fruit of the Spirit like no other, and the world will not be able to deny it. That's what you find when you find Jesus. You find a King who has come to rule over a people. Um, Now, it is incumbent upon us as those people to submit to the loving rule and reign of that great Savior. Have you done that? If not, I encourage you today to run to Him. And if you're a believer, continue running to Him until you see Him face to face. Let's pray. Father, we love You, praise You, and thank You for the glorious nature of Your kingdom. Father, we thank You for texts like these. God, uh, You know this text almost scared me some days. I didn't know what to do with it. But You always know what to do with it. Father, I pray that You'd help me to be faithful in Your Word. Father, not to... um, Trying to fix up the Word of God in some um, schemes or makeup. Great show, lights, bells, whistles. Your Son is beautiful in and of Himself. Father, would you help us to realize that? We don't need all those other things, we simply need Christ. And Christ is King. Father, there's so many areas of my life that I need to submit. And not just submit outwardly. I think I've done that a lot. But to submit inwardly. that I may pursue those areas with joy. God, would you help us to do that? Father, would you help us to see Christ as King, seated at the right hand of God the Father, on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning even now. Father, would you help us to see his love for us in the Spirit as it lives and dwells in us, Father, um, praying for us even when we don't know how to pray. Father, would you help us to see the love of Christ that is written all abroad and across in our hearts, Father, and that everything that you have for the believer um, to this day and from now on, Father, will be an expression of love. Um, amen. Father, that, that you would just accomplish that tremendous and mighty work in our hearts that would just compel us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to be a presentation and representation, Father, of the love that you have for us. God, would you help us to praise you in the highest. Hosanna, Lord, save us now. But to mean it, Father, to understand it and the glory in that great Savior who came on a donkey but is now seated as a king. Father, if there's anybody here today that doesn't know Christ, I'm begging you to give them a new heart and to show them just the, the beauty of your son. God, I can't convince them. Nobody here can, but you can. So would you do that now, Father, even as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.